Welcome to the Coaching Talks Podcast, your inspirational moment to continue your growth journey. How can we drive our passion towards a meaningful impact? Today, we'll talk about what's beyond the Ikigai together with the leadership coach, Jason Vickerwall Lim. And now, relax and enjoy. Welcome back to our show. This is Mark Siles talking today from our studio in Helsinki. A while ago, I was lucky to work for a couple of years in a project in Japan. During those two years of adventure, I learned a lot about the Japanese culture. And one of the elements that made an impact in me was what they call the Ikigai, practiced in the island of Okinawa. According to Hector Garcia and Francesc Miralles, authors of the book Ikigai, The Japanese Secret to a Long and Happy Life, the Japanese word Ikigai is written by combining two symbols, which mean life and to be worthwhile. In other words, the happiness of living a fulfilling life. There is a passion inside you, a unique talent that gives meaning to your days and drives you to share the best of yourself until the very end. If you don't know what your Ikigai is yet, as Viktor Frankl says, your mission is to discover it. Our Ikigai is different for all of us, but one thing we have in common is that we are all searching for meaning. When we spend our days feeling connected to what is meaningful to us, we live more fully. When we lose the connection, we feel despair. In their book, they also mention that our Ikigai is hidden deep inside each of us, and finding it requires a patient search. According to those born on Okinawa, the island with the most centenarians in the world, our Ikigai is the reason we get up in the morning. Having a clearly defined Ikigai brings satisfaction, happiness and meaning to our lives. One surprising thing you notice living in Japan is how active people remain after they retire. In fact, many Japanese people never really retire. They keep doing what they love for as long as their health allows. There is in fact no word in Japanese that means retire in the sense of leaving the workforce for good as in English. According to Dan Butner, a National Geographic reporter who knows the country well, having a purpose in life is so important in the Japanese culture that our idea of retirement simply doesn't exist there. The authors of the mentioned book conducted a total of 100 interviews in Ojimi, Okinawa, to try to understand the longevity secrets of centenarians and supercentenarians. The inhabitants of that area of Japan have an important purpose in life, or several. They have an ikigai, but they don't take it too seriously. They are relaxed and enjoy all what they do. One thing that everyone with a clearly defined Ikigai has in common is that they pursue their passion no matter what, mixing four key elements. Do what you love, do what you are good at, do what the world needs, and do what you can be paid for. In other words, it's a composition of how we mix our passion, vocation, mission, and profession. Hector and Francesc say in their book that those who give up the things they love doing and do well lose their purpose in life. That's why it's so important to keep doing things of value, making progress, bringing beauty or utility to others, helping out and shaping the world around us even after your official professional activity has ended. In order to achieve an optimal experience of life and happiness, we have to focus on increasing the time we spend on activities that bring us state of flow 
rather than allowing ourselves to get caught up in activities that offer immediate pleasure. Concentrating on one thing at a time may be the single most important factor in achieving flow. The 10 basic rules of Ikigai that are presented in the book are the following. Number one, stay active, don't retire. Number two, take it slow. Number three, don't fill your stomach. Number four, surround yourself with good friends. Number five, get in shape for your next birthday. Number six, smile. Number seven, reconnect with nature. Number eight, give thanks. Number nine, live in the moment. And number 10, follow your Ikigai. McKinsey and Company included the Ikigai as a main dimension to nurture in one of their reports called Seven Essential Elements of a Lifelong Learning Mindset. In this report, they mentioned that although organizations have a great responsibility to provide the context for meaning, individuals can do much to create a calling for themselves. Exploring career purpose, meaning and passion is not easy, and it takes intentional reflection and planning. Individuals can also seek guidance from a career counselor or explore life design. Life design is a concept emerging from a career choice and development theories as a method to help people explore and develop their identity and deliberately design a life that will give them meaning. To explore this topic and see how Ikigai translates into passion and a career, we have today with us on the phone all the way from Norway, Jason Bickervold Lim. Jason was born in Toronto, Canada, and is a passionate leadership and communication coach. Since 2000, Jason has helped people in a broad range of industries, individuals, and to build confidence, certainty, and clarity. As a sparring partner, coach, and facilitator, Jason works with individuals and teams to utilize the science of brain-based skills to continually improve their ability as leaders, communicators, and enablers. In addition, he designs and delivers practical brain-based leadership and personal resilience programs to improve people's ability to manage themselves, others, and situations. In 2012, Jason was asked to speak at TEDx Oslo about how people can adapt in times of change, with the emphasis of shifting mindsets. His talk was titled At the Crossroads, Where the Brain Meets the Mind. He's also a contributing writer in the Executive Secretary magazine, with distribution of 130 countries. His articles focus on personal development in regard to the mind, the brain, thinking, and everything in between. Jason, welcome to our show. Thanks a lot, Mark. I appreciate the invite. It's great to have you with us today. And following introduction around the topic of the Ikigai we had today, let me ask you, what are you passionate about? Uh, my passions, I guess, they started quite early, but it's, it's everything related to the cognitive sciences, neurosciences, and my background, my education work experience within clinical rehab psychology, which is much more of a sort of a cognitive behavioral take on things. I really, what I'm really, really passionate about is actually, you know, learning that stuff is really good, but it's the ability to apply it with my client base, whether it's with individuals or with, with its groups. Mainly before I got into sort of the corporate game, I was working with, with some levels of trauma and such where I applied the techniques to help people sort of, you know, manage to try and make sense of what has happened to them, whether that was stress, anxiety, depression, what have you. But now working in the corporate field, my passion is really to, to apply my skills and education from that experience 
in the professional setting. Sounds really exciting, especially to see how that passion has been driving you to start your own career, your own company, which you're going to be talking about it in a while. But what is the reason or reasons that push you to get up in the morning? The reason I get up in the morning, well, <laughs> I guess, you know, running your own, uh, being an entrepreneur every day is different. I've been, I've been very privileged to be able to build up as a Canadian here in Norway, a, a really strong client base. And it's the ability to help them help themselves move through different challenges. You know, most of those are professional, but some of them are private. But at the end of a conversation, when I can see someone, you know, they've taken ownership and they've taken responsibility and, and they found a way forward from our conversation. You know, they do 98% of the heavy lifting, but, you know, I'm 2%. I, I'm, I'm just but a catalyst you know, sort through their thoughts. And that's why I get up every day. I mean, I'm really passionate about <laughs> it. I won't become filthy rich by doing what I do, but it's just uh, it's so rewarding to see someone be able to move forward with a conundrum or problem they've been working with. That's why I love getting up in the morning and doing what I do. I'm curious to find out more about how you started, how you initiated those first steps. Which are the factors that took you to found your company, MindTalk? Well, it was kind of, it was kind of, it wasn't a planned development of my company because when I first moved to Norway, I had my graduate education within rehab and clinical psychology. And the idea was to, to work with that, to work, you know, have a clinic or work with a clinic to help patients with the things that I worked with. But back in the day, when I moved here 20 years ago, they didn't really have sort of a master's and PhD programs. They had, they had an entirely different education ranking. And so at that time, the Norwegian educational system or the professional system there wanted me to jump through hoops that I've already jumped through. And so I just saw that as a very exhausting way. And I didn't feel like going through that because I had just finished years of graduate study <laughs> and writing a thesis and such. And I really wanted to apply my trade. And so that is what I did. I, I just started as coaching and coaching 20 years ago in Norway. <laughs> It wasn't a thing. So I got in at the ground level and I just started working with professionals, one or two, but they really appreciated what I did. And slowly they said, hey, can you work with my team member here? Or I sit on this uh, board or I sit on the top leadership. And so they would recommend me to other people and slowly. And then, you know, some of these men and women, they would they would move on to other corporations. And they say, Jason, could you please come with me? I, I like the idea of having a sparring partner. And just slowly over 20 years, completely sort of accidentally, it just kind of grew that way. But then after a while, about three or four years in, then I really started sort of seeing what worked and didn't. And I was quite strategic in how I planned the development and growth of my, my company, MindTalk. It sounds extremely inspiring, especially when uh, we can hear from you, as you were mentioning, you were able to also listen, not just which passion you had with him, but as well, like how this passion was serving others that was having an impact on those around you. And if we look even a bit deeper, how do you see MindTalk bringing uh, meaning to your life, Jason? Well, MindTalk brings, how it brings me meaning, it's, you know, I have three children, but this is kind of my brainchild. And, uh, you know, MindTalk in itself is it's just a name, but it's, I think it, it resonates with a lot of people about not just what I do, but what the concept of helping people through, through conversations really helps. And so it has brought me so many opportunities. I mean, 
I, I have the fortune to work with the United Nations, with a corporation with another small company called Ergo Ego, where we work with the UN. I have the chances to work with great international companies such as Deutsche Telekom. It's not so much the roster of clients that I have, but it's the individuals within those organizations, those connections I have. You know, I'm helping people. I know that because of the feedback, and I'm very privileged to have the job that I do. But I get, I feel so rewarded to to, to work with these people, understand their problems, and hmm. to understand their challenges, and see how they actually sort of cowboy up and to deal with their challenges. I mean, they're very motivated to do that. But sometimes it's what gives me is the ability to understand more about human nature and personality and actually seeing how all the theory that I've learned in brain science actually applies in the real world. And that's what mind talk gives me. It's a, it's a living, breathing university that I experience every day where I just don't have book knowledge, but it translates into, it, it articulates into experience knowledge, which, which, which I find so rewarding experienced knowledge. It sounds great and I think it resonates with a lot of us. In which way do you think that your vocation is aligned with what the world needs at the moment? I think that's a really good question there, Mark. Um, you know, part of my uh, clientele are millennials and we, mm -hmm. sometimes the millennials are referred to as sort of the snowflake generation or delicate flowers. But when you actually sit down with them and you talk to them, you can understand what they're feeling and what they go through. And so I, th I think not just what I do, but the ability to help people with stress and pressure and anxiety and, and milder forms of depression, I think it's, it's a growing need that you see. I, I can't speak about the entire world, but from the West with Westerners that I work with, which is mainly about 95%, I see these as growing issues within corporations. And it's not just a millennial thing. I see that I'm a Gen Xer. I see that with, you know, Gen Xers. I see that with baby boomers or what have you. And so I think because it takes so long to develop psychiatrists and professionals within clinical and counseling psychology, uh, which I would have loved to been able to do, but because, as I said, with the education system, I decided to go the corporate manner. I think having people who are able to, to some extent, help individuals, not with serious clinical challenges, of course, that's for the professionals, but someone as a, uh, as a coach or a sparring partner is so needed right now because it takes so long to educate very highly professionals in those areas. Mm -hmm. So if you can have a very competent coach or a very competent sparring partner, he or she can contribute so much to a, a growing uh, challenge, I think, that are, that's found throughout the Western world. And I'm sure the developing world too, if not more. Exactly. Those are topics uh, regarding stress, anxiety, burnouts. Uh, in those dimensions, they are topics that we have been touching in some of our previous podcasts. We have been dedicating quite much time also with other experts because I truly believe as well that it's, if not the main issue to tackle, it's going to be one of the main issues to take care of from our personal point of view, but at the same time in big corporations. I, I, I think it's... You know, especially with, you know, the launch of sort of augmented reality and virtual reality and machine learning and, and robot, the whole idea of being able to have to retool, uh, or I think they call it new skilling now. I think that's the term to actually find new skills because, you know, working with a lot of people, one of the major things I help people do is to understand their relationship between certainty and uncertainty. 
and to you know step back from sort of the autopilot of sort of our habitual brains and actually mm-hmm. kind of move into the pilot seat and to be present with how you're you see your relationship with certainty and uncertainty because you know as we migrate more into this digital economy and everyone's partially migrated it's not a full migration yet there's a lot of questions and uncertainties and this this in itself the uncertainty itself just generates uh, more question marks more more unknowns and this pushes more stress more pressure more uh anxiety about the future and also about you know more depressive thoughts maybe not so much depression but depressive thoughts about what they're losing from the certainty you know professions such as yours and mine and everyone else who calls themselves a coach or a sparring partner are a highly influential i think they're highly needed right now and into the future of course I think that the environment where we are dealing at the moment, you know, this volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous environment, it is something totally new. And sometimes we are struggling to face that uncertainty, that unknown by ourselves. According to the Ikigai philosophy, MOI is an informal group of people with common interests who look for one another. So in a way, the sense of, you know, going through this not alone, trying to find a good uh, surrounding, a good uh, team of people around you that supports each other, especially through difficult times. It's very, very important. I'm just wondering how important has it been for you, the support of others during your difficult times? Well, myself, I, I think, you know, um, I think being a male, you know, we, we, we grow up with a narrative that we need to be strong and solve our own things, that we need to be the shoulder that everyone else cries on. But I think that's a, a broken narrative. And so, you know, I've gone through my own uh, trials and traumas and I've had to reach out for help myself. I mean, mm-hmm. the helper sometimes needs to be helped, you know, and that is something I, I, I have no problem admitting that I, I turn to friends, I turn to my own coach per se, where she helps me with uh, situations. Sometimes I get blocked in my own head, I get my own bubble. And uh, sometimes I can't find the exits. So she kind of, we talk and she kind of pops the door open. There's the exit. Uh-huh. <laughs> it was there all the time. So <laughs> I moved through it. So I think it's so important for everyone to have someone that they can turn to, that they can trust and who's transparent and can professionally help them move through things. Because friends and family, as close as they are and as, as, and as much as they want to support us, the challenge is, though, sometimes they're too close. Uh, they're too close to us. And what you need sometimes is the third third road. And I think it's having someone who's, you know, you have a good relationship with, but it's a professional relationship. And they can be straightforward with you. They can be, you know, they can call you out on things where maybe friends and families, because of the relationship and because of the dynamics of that relationship, they don't want to challenge you in that way. And so I think everyone needs to be challenged and take ownership and responsibility for their thinking and their behaviors and their attitudes. And that's something that applies to me, of course. Daring to ask for help. It's another skill you were talking about, which will be those new skills that we will need to face those uncertain environments. And having that ability, that skill to get out there 
and get that support when needed. I think it's going to be one of the ones to have in our toolbox for the near future, if it's not already needed now at the moment. In one of your articles, you talk about the inside out mindset. Could you explain a bit more to our audience what that is? Yeah, sure. Uh, the inside out mindset is just that, is that, you know, each of us carries our own sort of inner world. We have our, our own sort of inner climate. What that means is that I, I talk about sort of the autopilot and the pilot seat. The autopilot is just that it's a sort of a layman's term to describe sort of the habitual patterns that the brain develops about certain things. And if we're not wary of how our habits or our patterns come up, it will uh, we 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 will just execute those habits, whether they are mental or physical, and that that shapes how we make decisions, how we collaborate, communicate, how we uh, uh, cooperate, and how we uh, it reflects in our attitudes about things. Where we're building ourselves up or we're building ourselves down. Mm -hmm. When I said the inside out, that means by changing sort of the inner environment you can change the outer environment. So that, that's a very sort of a cognitive behavioral approach. Change your cognition, you change your behavior. But that's not to say that I can also be consciously by changing my behavior over time, that will also shape my cognition. And what I mean by cognition is anything that happens in the head. It could be an emotion, a thought. It could be a moving image or a still frame or a question we pose to ourselves. That's what I mean by cognition. Hmm. So an inside out mindset is just that. By taking responsibility for what's going on cognitively in my head, I can change my outward behavioral response, whether that is how I speak, what I say, how I say things, how I act. And I think what I try to call all of my clients out on is to take responsibility because at the end of the day, anything that actually happens outside of us, well, that doesn't really, that does affect us, but at the end of the day, it's, it's the meaning I give to that outside experience. So like you and I, Mark, we could both see, see the same change that hits us, right? It's a change mm -hmm. we've not wanted, but there it is on our doorstep. Mark decides, he's going, I don't like this, but Mark is thinking more about, okay, what are the facts? How do I move forward? Who can I talk to? Where are the resources? So he sort of cowboys up and he deals with the situation. On the other hand, Jason, same experience, same change that comes into onto his doorstep. He doesn't want it, but his mind talk, his self-talk in, in his environment, he's wishful thinking, oh, why couldn't it be this way? Why couldn't it be that way? Look at all the things that I'm going to lose. Uh, there's no way I'm going to do this. I know this is the talk that goes through my head. But Mark and Jason face the same thing, but Mark takes a constructive way of looking at it. But Jason takes a more destructive or negative way. And so if Jason was like Mark and took control of the inner environment, that is what I mean by the inside out mindset. Absolutely. I think it was uh, Geoffrey Colvin that published back, I think it was 2006 in one of the Fortune magazines, uh, that many studies have confirmed that it's not intelligence actually that creates the expertise, but effort and practice. That is, in other words, the hard work. So linking this back to what you were saying on ownership and responsibility, how important is to build our own purpose and to own our growth journey instead of waiting that this comes to us or is revealed in some way, let's call it in a magical way. Well, I think it's, it's, it's very important that, uh, you know, that we take book knowledge. I mean, we can educate ourselves. I mean, we can have a, a, obviously a, a certain level of intelligence, but it's only through the, you know, lessons learned going through the school of hard knocks of, of experiences and, you know, ups and downs and failures and successes that 
really shape the character of a person. Um, I, I think that is so important. So that really resonates with me. In one of your articles, you also mentioned that uh, the important idea is that the brain has not evolved to stay in a static and unmodifiable state. Rather, it's always a work in progress. The brain is continuously learning, adapting and changing consciously and unconsciously in response to what you attend and to what you experience. Which threats and opportunities does this imply? Um, well, what I mean by that, I mean, like... <sighs> The heart pumps blood. I mean, that's his job. The lungs pump oxygen. The brain itself pumps survival. But, you know, even though we have this sort of uh, very primal programming from thousands and thousands of years ago, the brain is the only organ, as your listeners and you know probably, that adapts based on what we think. So it is constantly being restructured. Hmm. Whether it's practicing the violin, your motor, motor cortex will strengthen because of that, or the you know the sometimes overmentioned taxi cab or the the ta uh, the London cab drivers. You know they have a, a very developed sort of cortical part of their brain that maps out sort of dimensions and cortical processes. In the sense, what I'm saying is that. Even though we say, sometimes people say, well, I'm born this way. Well, no, you're not born this way. It's through a process of neuroplasticity. Neuro meaning sort of the, the neural processes, the brain cells. Mm -hmm. and plasticity meaning the ability to form. Neuroplasticity means that our brains will adapt to whatever we attend to. That might be if I want to bounce a basketball with my left hand instead of my right hand if I want to learn a new language, if I want to think more constructively and not always destructively about how I move into change, for example. So the brain is constantly evolving based on what I focus on, what I attend to, how often I think a certain way. You know, one thing about the brain we know is that once you develop a habit mentally or physically, it's there for life. It doesn't go away. Like you can never unlearn to ride a bicycle. You can never unlearn to speak a certain language, you know, unless you have severe brain damage, but above and beyond that, you can't erase neural patterns. And so a lot of people are, I hear, and this was both sort of when I worked in clinically, but hmm. also corporately now is that people are saying, I wish I could erase this. I wish I could change this about me. What I tell people is that unfortunately you won't be able to erase. These are, these are habits and patterns that are that are burned into your neural network. What you want to be able to do is just to make peace with them. And that's part of the autopilot. So sometimes, for example, sort of a generic problem, like people have, they're deathly afraid to give a presentation. Well, you're not going to change that, uh, that, that fear. It will rise in you. It will come, it, it will percolate up when you have to give it. But the question is, what do you do with that emotion? Do you, do you close it down? and then just you know, run away and not face that? Or do you take that fear and do something with it? And so what I mean by that is that we can develop new habits and neuroplasticity 
allows us to do this. So if I start changing the narrative or the script in my head, where I can be more productive, where I can say, you know what? There are times when I have given a small presentation, this is what it feels like to feel confident. Then I can take my old default habit and it, it won't go away, but what will happen, it'll, it'll grow dusty and it'll, it'll sit in the back in the dark recesses of my mind as my new habit about, you know, getting up on the horse and actually having that presentation. So based on being in the pilot seat, the more I think about something constructively, the more I want to move ahead and what do I want to build, then this thinking, these feelings, these attitudes and behaviors and reactions will eventually sh shape new habits that serve me instead of old habits that serve against me. Are you referring to the perception of the challenge as itself and having that perception shift or challenge that that may change the way that we react to it, even if the initial habit is there? There may be some new patterns, some new habits coming up that would replace the previous one, but that one is still there. Is what you're referring to? Yeah, so the new habit actually becomes the default habit, and the other one is always there, but it's, it lies mm -hmm. dormant, right? Because you're constantly referring to the new default habit, which means, you know, the emotions of anxiety or a little bit of fear of presentation will always be present. But the new habit says, okay, what do I do with this? How do I constructively deal with it? Because I think what is very important is that people are like constantly, not, not constantly, but you sometimes see some coaches pushing, oh, it's all about positive thinking and positive affirmations, and that will get you through. To some degree, I, I understand where they're coming from, but I've met myself and every client I have, they've come into a situation it's a bad situation. Any way you cut that uh, that uh, situation, it's bad. The question is, all the positive thinking is not going to get you through it. What you need, I think, is very important is constructive thinking. Because any choice you got to make, it may be a difficult choice and it will have repercussions or, or some sort of fallout. But you need to make a choice to move through the storm. So... I like to try to push the idea that we sometimes need to be constructive about moving through difficult situations and that positive affirmations to the degree they help, they don't help in every way. And I think that's kind of trying to heat a house with the windows open. I think that brings on the table some of the topics you presented in your TEDx, uh, your TEDx talk that you delivered in Oslo some years ago, where you were talking about being solution-oriented, having this forward focus in overthinking rather than getting stuck with the negative and the downside of the problems, or even trying to lie to ourselves about that is actually, you know, this is a problem, what do I do with it? What is reactive mindset that you describe in that talk and how does it influence in our decision-making capabilities at work? That's a really good question. Well, if I rewind back a little, um, there's this neuroscientist, David Eagleman, he, he speaks of the, the brain being like very much like a parliamentary system where you have different parties, left, right, green, liberal, uh, conservative, what have you. Each of those parties wants the best for the country and take it forward, but they will have different policies and strategies on how we do this. But our brains are very much like that. Um, we have different circuits and different networks. We call these circuits and networks mindsets. Now, depending upon the network, it will uh, tap into different structures in the brain which have different functions, which release different types of chemicals. The reactive mindset, now, I just want to put a little caveat here. Mindsets themselves are neither good nor bad. They each serve their purpose. 
A reactive mindset is one that is sort of based on sort of primal instinctual survival. It's sort of the, the traditional fight, flight, and flock. You know, when we feel there may be a real threat or maybe a perceived threat. For most of us in the Western world, they tend to be psychosocial issues. You know, our relationship with our tribe or with the team or the project group or what have you. Mm-hmm. And so a reactive is just that, where we think about ourselves, we become very problem-oriented. We, we tend to exaggerate the problem. We tend to have a type of narrative or mind talk going through our heads, which constricts us, where we put actually handcuffs on our own wrists. We limit ourselves. We tend to focus on things that we can't control, what we can't influence. We tend to focus on all the uncertainties and things we lose. And that's the reactive mindset. Now, from an evolutionary point of view, this is totally understandable. Because if that big, hungry predator is coming at me, I'm not going to be looking at the fluffy clouds or the pretty flowers. I'm going to be looking at that thing coming at me about to devour me and my children. And I, my brain will want to focus on the problem. It will want to exaggerate it so my reactions are of survival. Now, as I said, most of the time in the Western world, we have what's called perceived threats. They're not real threats. What we want to do is move to what's called a reflective mindset. Now, again, mindsets are different networks in the brain, and they're like a parliamentary system. So you can think about the reactive party and the reflective party. The reactive party is the the party that's constantly feeling that they have to put out fires and they're making rush decisions and they're focusing on the problems and such. The reflective party understands the challenges coming up, he or she, or that network sees, takes a balanced approach, looking at both the negative and the positive, the gains and the loss, the advantages and disadvantages. But reflection is just that. It's the ability to move from the subjective to the objective. And in the objective point, we start seeing the entire narrative. We don't have a limited, restricted storyline. We see the entire narrative, kind of big picture thinking, I guess. Hmm. You're looking at it in different contexts. You're looking at what, what, what are the different elements? What are the different variables and constants in the equation? And so a reflective mindset is just that, where we slow things down. I think David Kahneman, uh, Daniel Kahneman refers to it in his uh, book, Thinking Fast and Slow, as I believe it's System 2, where it's about deliberate reasoning and slowing things down. Well, that's the reflective mindset. And when you're in a reflective mindset, that's where we want to be when we're faced with change that's coming at us that we didn't invite. Because in the reactive, we just make um, rash decisions. And so that's pretty much when I, in my TEDx talk, was that I, I said at the crossroads between the brain and the mind. The brain is just an organ, like the heart or the lungs. It pumps survival. And that's what the reactive mindset is. The mind is more about being present. <laughs> it's more about understanding and reflecting on the different facts. It's being solution-oriented. It's looking at the... Yes, there, I see the doors that have closed, but I also see the doors that are opened. Yes, I, 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 I understand that these are the things we're losing, but these are also the things that we're gaining. It means I tend to focus on, in the reflective mindset, on things that I can control, that I can influence. And I have to come to some level of agreement with myself that there are things that I cannot influence that are beyond my power or reach. Mm-hmm. And I tend to focus on, again, my relationship with certainty and uncertainty. I, I might feel myself, oh, I need to retreat behind the, the fortified walls of certainty where everything is safe. But sometimes I need to also understand, okay, that's what my, my brain wants to do, react, go back to where it's safe. But in uncertainty, 
That is where growth lies. That's where opportunity. You know, anytime we learn to strive something, whether it's a physical or mental thing that we want to learn, we need to move into uncertainty. We need to accept a certain level of, of the unknown, a certain level that we're going to mess up and fail and fall flat in our face. But we've created the narrative in our head that is of a reflective mindset narrative where I'm thinking, you know what, it's okay to mess up because only through messing up do I learn. I think uh, you referred to it once when in one of our earlier talks by Carol Dweck. I think it's the growth mindset she talks about, mm -hmm. right? Correct. I think that's what the reflective mindset is in a sense. So do you see the reflective mindset being the one that helps us bring insights and uh, learnings, not just from failures, but also from successes to the way that we, we're going to make decisions later on? So it's not just about what did we learn yesterday, but as well about which part of the process on how we make decisions we're going to modify so the next time we can get a better output. So it's not about the output as itself, but it's about the process, the insight that it's gathered within the process and how are we going to improve and modify to make better decisions the next time. I think that's you've well articulated there, Mark, because, you know, whether it's not always failures, of course, we can learn from the failures, but from also successes, successes also form a feedback loop to tell us that, hey, this went well because you did this or thought this way or what have you collaborated this way. And thus that becomes a feedback loop for me to learn also. So being in a reflective mindset is something we need to do. You can't, of course, you cannot be in the reflective mindset all the time. There's just no way. You know, most of our lives are sort of in reaction or what I mean is we're in a sort of a habitual way. Most of our day is about just executing habit after habit, whether physical or mental. But in times where we need to be in the pilot seat, We need a means to help us shift the networks, to shift the parliament in our heads from the reactive so the reflective party has control of the parliament in our head, where he or she or it is able to step back and process. And I think part of being in the reflective mindset, whether it's successes or whether it's failures, is the ability to think about our emotions instead of thinking with our emotions. Mm -hmm. Thinking about our emotions, not thinking with the emotions. I think that's very good insight to take with us. You were referring a while ago to Carol Dweck, a psychologist at Stanford University, a very famous author of the book Mindset, The Psychology of Success. When we are facing a challenge, uh, she mentioned that we can have two different types of mindsets, the, the growth or the fixed mindset, as she called them. McKinsey describes Professor Zweck's approach saying that people with a fixed mindset believe that their learning potential is just fixed by their genes. Uh, their socioeconomic background or opportunities that are available to them is just predefined. So they might have thoughts like the ones you said before, that I'm not good at public speaking, so I should just avoid it. I'm going to quit. On the other hand, those with a growth mindset, however, believe that their true potential is unknown because it's impossible to foresee. And that might happen just as a result of developing our passion, effort, hard work, practice. So they appreciate challenges because they see them as an opportunities for personal growth, opportunities to learn something new. And ultimately, they may have achieved more of their personal potential than someone that has a fixed mindset just because they see the opportunity and the fruitful efforts of hard work. What do you think that companies and individuals can do to support the development of a growth mindset environment? I think that's, again, another, another good question. Um, I think if you look at a majority of, of corporations or organizations, they have performance goals. 
And uh, performance goals are very important where you have metrics and there's measurable improvements and developments. But I think to encourage that, I think if teams look, or a leader, let's say, if we just bring it down to a leader, if he or she says, okay, I've got performance goals for all my people, but maybe to balance it with learning goals, where learning goals is just that, there's no, it's not about performance, it's just strictly about development, where they might ask their, their employee, hey, who are you when you're at your best? That question itself triggers something what I call the urge and surge circuit in the brain. It's this, it's this sort of intrinsic internal motivation. That, this is another circuit in the brain, another type of mindset, but it's linked to this growth mindset of Car- uh, Carol Dweck. Is that if you ask someone, who are you when you're at your best? Oh, I'm this, I'm that. What do you love doing? This or this? What part of your job do you wish you could develop more? This or this? Well, then that manager or that leader, he or she could say, okay, let's make that a learning goal. There's no bonus tied to it, but it's someone you're firing off the intrinsic internal motivation. This, what I mean by intrinsic motivation, this is the same motivation if we have a hobby or we do something, we don't get paid for it, we just do it for the sake of doing it. If an organization or a team leader can instill this in their people, that means that they're not looking for the extra bonus or an extra salary bump, as, as great as that is, they do it for the inner passion, that inner sort of spark. And I think that is how you can create a growth mindset because if you create learning goals, well, part of learning is you mess up, you, you screw up and you fail sometimes. And how do you learn from that? And so there's this development. And I think, again, back to the relationship to a person's certainty and uncertainty, we know certainty is a good thing because that brings safety and clarity and security. But if we get there can be too much certainty. What I mean by that is if you've been on a job for too long, you've had the same responsibilities, it becomes routine, it becomes boredom. We become complacent, even maybe apathetic at what we're doing. So if someone has some uh, a developmental goal that he or she has engineered and designed for themselves, of course, in line with the organizational's goals, but it's about performance and just, I'm not sorry, not about performance, but it's just about development. Well, then you light the fire under that person because first they take ownership for it because that was their idea hmm. and they're getting support from their manager. So that's what I think you can in, to instill is to have both a balance between performance and learning goals within a team. Which tips and advices would you have for our audience to close the podcast today to combat the reactive mindset you were talking about before and be more effective and productive, not just at work, but also in life? I think it's to be present with your own thinking. Um, you know, I'm not pushing mindfulness or anything, but I'm, I'm, what I'm saying is if we can sometimes check in with ourselves two, three, four, five times a day, just to ask ourselves three primary questions. What am I thinking right now? What am I feeling or emoting? And what is my reaction or my behavior right now? Mm-hmm. Now, you might just be sitting on a bus doing anything, but by constantly checking in with yourself, It means you turn off the habitual re- reactive nature of our brains to be on sort of robot mode all day and to actually move into reflection. If when we're reflected, it means we're in the pilot seat and we can actually consciously and cognitively decide what we want to do and what we think. And we can break the old narrative that's going through our head that let's say it's a sort of mind talk that is not helping. Well, then if I'm present with myself and I practice this every day, three or four, five times a day, 
then I, I can change the narrative. I can actually write the script then and there, sitting on the bus or paying for my groceries or sitting in a meeting. And I think the more often you do this, this becomes your default habit. You become more present with yourself. And this becomes a natural way of firing off that reflective network. Great advice, Jason. And I think that all of us will get a great benefit just by practicing and focusing on what you said. Jason, once again, it was a pleasure to have you with us. Highly appreciate the time you dedicated to share with me and with all the audience your insights and wisdom. And we're looking forward to see how your impact continues developing through the coming weeks, months, and years to come. Yeah, cheers, Mike. I really appreciate the chance to talk to you and your audience. It was a great talk, and I have to say your questions are quite made me reflective mindset all 35, <laughs> 40 minutes of this. This is great. That's great. Thanks again, Mark. Great to hear. Talk to you very soon, Jason. Have a good one. So that was all for today. And thank you very much for being a loyal listener. Let us know if there is any topic you would like us to cover down in the space for comments. Have a great rest of the week. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to our bi-weekly podcast. And remember, this is about spreading and sharing the knowledge. So feel free to forward this audio to anybody you believe could get any benefit out of it. Coaching Talks Podcast, your inspirational moment to continue your growth journey.